Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, hello. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is New Books in Science Fiction, where we take a deep dive into science fiction and the minds of the people who create it. Today's episode is the Just a Hole in the Ground edition, and with me today is debut author Caitlin Starling, whose book, The Luminous Dead, details the perilous journey of a young woman by the name of Jire Price as she explores a deep, scary, and very dangerous cave on a far-flung mining planet. Caitlin is joining me from Portland, Oregon, through Skype. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for inviting me. The Luminous Dead takes readers to a place I think few people would ever voluntarily go, deep down into a, for me anyway, very scary and definitely unstable cave. Could you tell our listeners about the main character, Jire Price, who she is, and why she's taking this assignment to explore this cave alone? So Jire is, as you said, she's a young woman, and she has been training for cave diving, cave exploring her entire life. She lives on a colony world that has an economy based around some extractive mining industries, and the only way that they can scout for these minerals and gases that they need is by sending cavers down. So When this colony world was settled, this seemed like, okay, great, they've struck it rich, except that when they would send more than one person down, they would die. Maybe fast, maybe slow, but there was a very high mortality rate on these missions. And so prior to the events of the book, they've discovered that if you send one caver down in a support suit with a team on the surface to sort of take the role of what their crew would normally do down underground, that these people don't die. Um, So they're able to map the locations and then otherwise cut off the cave system from whatever is killing these cavers in order to mine it successfully. So the reason for this suit, though, is because, as you may be able to guess, you should not go into a cave by yourself. It is, in fact, very dangerous to go into a cave by yourself. And so the suit is a way to get around that while introducing new challenges. And it's an amazing suit. It's a a great invention. It's it's kind of like an exoskeleton and helps her climb and obviously protects her and lets her see in complete darkness. But maybe you could say some of the cool things it does. Yeah. So as you said, it lets her see in complete darkness. Um, one of the major requirements in modern day caving expeditions is for fuel to have batteries or carbide for your headlamps. If you don't have fuel, you can't see. And if you can't see, you can't go forward. And more importantly, you can't get back out again. So I needed a way for her to be able to go down without all this fuel. And also just because light is considered one of the potential draws of whatever is killing these people. So instead, I gave her a sonar mapping technology. So she is mostly seeing in black and white the entire book. She is seeing where her sonar pings are able to resolve what's around her. And that is part of why she needs to team up on the surface, because that data gets uploaded and processed up on the surface and then sent back down to her suit so that she can have an idea of what's around her. 
So she sees a recreation, doesn't she? I mean, I feel like she's looking at some kind of TV or computer screen, flat screen, that is enhancing what she's seeing with colors that aren't necessarily there. That's correct. So since she's not using light to generate that input, it's not colors the way we would, we would think. If there are any colors, it's because of estimates of porosity or reflectiveness or other things like that. And it's it's not on exactly a lag, but there is some manipulation of the data happening, um, if only to fill in gaps so that she's seeing something that looks like as close to human sight as possible, but maybe the computer doesn't have all the information it needs, so it's extrapolating and filling in. But also that can be manually altered, which comes up in the book fairly early on. There's so many reasons for Jire to feel paranoid, I think, just being down alone in this very dangerous cave. But the fact that visually what she's seeing might be manipulated can fuel a kind of paranoia. And periodically she has to turn it off to actually see and double check, am I seeing what's real? Am I not? And it, it's certainly one of the many tools you use to create tension and suspense in the story. And then just even beyond the way she's seeing in the cave, the way she's moving around in the cave, she can't touch anything. She can't feel anything. Pretty much all of her senses have been cut off from the outside world, and either she can't use them, like she can't smell, she can't taste really, or she's experiencing them through some kind of adaptive technology. So she's either using that sonar or she's using feedback gel in her gloves when she's climbing so that she can feel the grip and modulate how much force she's using. And the suit also takes care of bodily functions. She's down in that cave for, she's going to be down in that cave, if all goes well, for several weeks. So it has to take care of things like eating, because if you don't know what's killing people, you don't want to open the suit to the external environment. So she has a feeding tube inserted before she goes down in that cave, and she feeds herself through these compact, easy-to-haul-around nutritional canisters. Food is also, in, in real-life caving, one of the big limiting things of it takes a lot of work to move it throughout the cave to where the people are who are doing the caving. So... Instead of dealing with that, she has these easily portable canisters, but it's connected to this horrible way of feeding yourself that a lot of people get very squicked by, um, but of course also exists in, in modern medicine and is something that keeps many people alive. So it's something that is, is most of these technologies are something that exists already, but used in a different way. In our world, if someone had this kind of surgery, it's because it's medically necessary. Right. They can no longer eat through their mouths. She's basically eating through a tube or some kind of orifice that goes directly into her stomach. It's really kind of horrific that the thought that she was so motivated to do this assignment that she was willing to undergo that kind of surgery. So so maybe you could talk about what what is her motivation that drives her to be willing to take these risks, undergo this incredibly invasive surgery, and take on this mission. So I mentioned that her colony world, Cassandra 5, is structured around this resource extraction mining. It is only structured around this resource extraction mining. There is not much of a functioning economy otherwise. It is, in a lot of ways, it's very similar to a gold rush town. So people settled this planet thinking, okay, it's going to be, you know, we'll all get rich, then we'll all move on, only to find out that it wasn't as easy to extract the resources as they expected. And so there's been this sort of 
breakdown of communities and occupations. And while there are some people making a whole lot of money, most people are barely making enough to survive. Jaira falls in the latter category. And that's before, when she's a child, her mother disappears. Her mother leaves the colony world without taking her husband or her child with her, not telling them where they're going, where she's going. And Jire has made it sort of her life's work to track down her mother and figure out what the hell happened. And one of the only ways she can get enough money to do that is by taking these very dangerous caving missions because it's one of the only get-rich-quick schemes on the planet that actually works. And the person she ends up working for is a woman named M. And what's interesting, one of the many things that's interesting, is that normally, as you've said, this work happens with the support of a team of people who are above ground and helping the caver stay safe, monitor their vitals. But Jire finds out after she's down there that she only has one person helping her, and this one person is M. And it makes for a incredibly tense and psychological setting that it's really a story of just two people. And it seems as if they're rather tormented souls who, in a way, are kind of meant for each other, even if they don't always trust or even like each other. I had this moment of realization recently that, and spoiler, because this is not the ending, so it's ruling out one op- one option, you could probably make an argument that this is them going through purgatory or some kind of, of judgment. It could be a whole, you know, the whole lost TV show <laughs> in a cave. That, yeah, they are, and, I, and, this, and I knew this from the beginning, I wanted them to bounce off of each other and play off of each other's best parts and worst parts in interesting ways. So um, it's, it's fairly spoilery to discuss the ways in which they are the same, but they are both driven by loss. Jire by the loss of her mother and M by losses, which will be are revealed throughout the course of the book. And the way that they have chosen to deal with these losses and the way especially that they have defined themselves and constructed who they are in the wake of these losses is what has led them to be entangled together the way they are in the book. And it adds another layer of claustrophobia, I think. There's so many ways in which it's such a tight space. You know, the cave is a tight space. Jire is in this tight suit and is confined to that. And then they just are two people who seem to have only each other. Because even M, who is above ground and presumably has connections to other people, she has employees... There's this sense, though, that she is traveling alone in the world, and the two of them are kind of isolated on their own journeys. Absolutely. Um, And and part of that is logistical in in terms of M, because if there's only one person person watching Jire, that person has to be there 24-7. Jire is relying on her while she sleeps to keep an eye on her surroundings, and she's relying on her while she's awake because she needs... M to a keep an eye on her surroundings while she's doing something focused like climbing or to intervene if there's an accident or there's a problem in the cave that the, the suit allows M to intervene in the suit among its many other properties we've already talked about also has onboard medical care but that medical care is best controlled by an expert who is probably not going to be the caver and in this case Jire doesn't have that kind of expertise 
So she's relying on M to be there with her. But at the same time, the more that it is only M there with her, the worse things get because M isn't sleeping. Jaira isn't getting to talk to anybody else. They get any outside help. And they're getting more and more drawn into each other's problems as opposed to it being a professional sort of interaction. You've written that the kind of relationship that M and Jire have, where they've never met in person and only know each other through electronic communication, is familiar to you as someone who grew up in the 90s and formed your own intense online relationships. And I wondered, did those experiences, in fact, help you portray M and Jire's evolving relationship? I think they did. Um of course, there's something a little bit different when it's just text instead of speech. By the time I was 15, 16, Skype was out, or MSN Messenger, I guess, was out. And I talked to some people by voice, but it was never our primary means of communication. I, in fact, still don't like to use the phone, as many people, I think, around my age will agree. But it does lend itself to the sort of obsession, I feel, that can form around when you know somebody, but you don't see them in person. Um, you only then see, you see an even smaller amount of them than you would if you saw them in your day-to-day life. And I think it's very easy to construct ideas around who that person is and what your relationship is like that can become very tumultuous or intense. Um, I had some very close friends growing up online that we went through some hellish periods because we're both you know we're both teenagers trying to figure things out and we're so we have that going on but we're also doing in this medium where we have ostensibly full control of how we're presenting ourselves to the other person and you know it was very easy to for the world to just boil down to that single connection as you've said before, they both have had experiences of loss. And like Jire, who is searching for her mother, I understand that when you were young, you lost your mother. And I wondered if there is an element of, if not exactly autobiography, but surely, as all writers do, you're drawing on your own experience when you're portraying Jire and M's experience of loss. So I was wondering how it connects to your real life experience or how you draw on something like that, which is, of course, you know, a very painful moment, I'm sure, for for anyone, but how your writing helps you grapple with that or how you use that in your writing. Like like you said, my mom died when I was nine. And it's very traditional or common, the whole trope of the, the dead mother that sort of sets off the quest. I know a lot of writers now are taking pains to avoid that, which I think is great. But because I have this experience, I keep doing it in my writing. It's Sometimes it's consciously chosen. Sometimes it kind of sneaks in and then I turn around and go, huh, so I'm doing that again. And a lot of it is, I feel like, a way to... It's something, first off, that I know a lot about. I can write very accurately and I hope very powerfully about the complexities of grief that arises out of a childhood loss in particular. There's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, in my case, there, there's numbness. There's sort of a remove. There are all these facets, and they work out differently for different people. 
So when I'm writing, I'm almost never writing my own experience. Um, I don't think I've yet written a character who reacted in quite the same way that I did. Although I think maybe in a project I'm working on now, that's sneaking in. Gyre did not react the way that I did, for instance. But it does let me explore other alternatives, other ways to feel that grief that make sense to me, that are paths I didn't take, but are still interesting and unique in their own regard. At one point, M says to Jair to try to dispel the pull that Jair suddenly feels to remain in the cave. The cave is just a hole in the ground. And in a literal sense, of course, that's true. But after so many days in darkness, it doesn't feel that way to Jair. In fact, it's almost as if the cave becomes a character in the story and Jair begins to relate to it that way. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in Jire's mind the longer she's down there? So there are a couple elements to this. The first is that, just as a side note, the cave as a character itself was a fairly late addition, but one that I was really excited to work in for various plot-related reasons. But also just, I read something in a book called In the Dust of This Planet that is about place as horror antagonist. In that book, it's specifically talking about a storm in Dante's Inferno. The storm is actually a demon, but it's not a demon that's cackling and going, ha ha ha, I'm punishing you. It's a storm that souls are swept up into, and it doesn't care. It has no opinions of its own. It's not doing it to be evil. It just is. And I read that and I went, oh, I think this cave is not just the stage on which this all plays out. I think this is a direct influence. And I'd already put bits of that in, um, not in a sort of supernatural or metaphysical sense that I started to work in later, but in the way that Jair is handling being in that cave. If you are in a cave or in complete darkness for any length of time, really, it starts changing how the brain works. Um, It starts messing with your circadian rhythm. Cavers who are underground for a long period of time will sleep for 24 hours, and then work for 48, and they won't notice. When you take away the sun and you take away any kind of external stimuli that humans evolve to respond to, our brains don't quite know what to do with it. And also, when you're down in that sort of environment, this is a very standard thing. In fact, it even has a name. You have panic attacks. The way that cavers refer to it is they call it the rapture, that Even an experienced caver who's been down for weeks at a time, many times before, at some point when they're down there, will have this moment of sheer terror and the desire to sort of just lay down and give up because the human brain is going, doesn't understand what you're trying to do by being down there that long. So if you add into that this deprivation from taste, from comfort, from even the the feel of a breeze on her skin, if you add in, you know, she's drinking water that's recycled from her own waste. She's eating through a feeding tube. She's become very dehumanized in a lot of ways. She's very much just a mechanical tool that is working, doing the bidding of this woman that she doesn't like. Things start to get very convoluted in Jire's head. Um, As much as she tries to keep things straight and to be pragmatic and realistic and skeptical and aware of her surroundings, she's under an immense amount of stress. And so it leads to things in real life. If, you, if you're in a situation where you're under that amount of stress, you might start seeing things like darting shadows. You're going to have sleep disturbances. You're going to potentially hear things that aren't real. 
That's a very actually normal thing to happen under great stress, although a lot of people don't talk about it because it's also terrifying. But there have been periods in my life where I have been under such a, you know, a certain amount of stress and I think I hear my, someone say my name and I turn and there's no one there. Or I'm walking in the evening and there's already a lot of shadows and it looks like there's a shadow darting across the road in front of a car, but there's nothing there. That's a fairly normal thing, but you put it in this, this uncomfortable, lonely situation like this cave and you add in that Jire doesn't trust her handler and you add in that Jire can't necessarily trust how she's seeing her environment and it just starts to spiral out of control. And you also have to factor in the fact that everyone who's attempted this same mission before her has died. And so she's also encountering bodies along the way. So we're wondering, along with her, are those bodies always real? Because sometimes if she can't find the body of someone she knows had gone down before her, she sometimes sees them actually physically walking around. And you've done it so artfully that we're not sure if she's hallucinating or if this person is actually down there and found a way to survive, or maybe they're actually a ghost. But I imagine that was also very hard for you to to write that because, you know, we're in her head and we're believing with her and are confused with her too. And I, I think that must have been a challenge anyway for you to do. It was and it wasn't. It was in the sense that I am a compulsively honest person um, and I tend to over-describe. I tend to try and show my work and prove that I know what I'm doing. So in edits, I had to sort of pull back some of the certainty and allow room for the audience to be as uncertain as Jire was. But in other ways, it was fully intentional because well, when the book was acquired, we decided to shift the focus of the second half of the book. Um, there used to be some sort of traditional you know, creature feature monsters in the book. And, and spoiler, that's not how things play out anymore. It's not that straightforward. And at that time, I had to sit down and go, okay, how do I make this arguably all in Jire's head, but not have that feel like a cop out, or not have that feel like a betrayal for the reader. And the way I decided to approach it was that I had to make it all being in her head have severe consequences. I had to make it a possibility that the reader hoped isn't true, hopes isn't true, not because it would be boring, but because it would be terrifying. The tension between M and Jire rises and falls throughout the story. I mean, sometimes they're working well together and sometimes they don't. Was it hard to find the right rhythm to keep the plot moving and keep the story interesting and yet always turning up the tension, especially when they can't even see each other? So even though the whole story depends on their relationship, it depends on it without Jire ever being able to really see M's physical cues, which makes it hard to read her intent and her emotions. The biggest challenge for me was to keep it from being repetitive. Because as you said, they have these ups and downs and they sort of seem to hit the same notes in their relationship multiple times. But I always wanted it to be from a different angle. So if it's an issue of, of you know, the big issue of can Jire trust M, I want to come in from Jire not wanting to trust M, from Jire needing to trust him, from Jire desperately wanting to trust him, and for M to have done different things each time so that it's it's 
something slightly different that Jaira was responding to each time. So that was tricky. It took a lot of fine calibration. That is probably the major thing that I was working on up until the end of edits, was making sure that each scene did something different, moved their relationship and the plot forward, and also was the right moment for that part in the story. So how do you work? Did you have a chart? I imagine you had one chart that showed the cave, which seems very complicated. It would have to be some kind of 3D chart because you can move in all directions, not just two dimensions, but then also some kind of way to denote the the steps and the ever-changing tone and color of M and Jire's relationship. So I had a spreadsheet for resource usage and time in the cave and how long it took to get between certain parts of the cave. But um, I did not draw the cave out in any way until we were close to publication. (laughs) There is a map in the front of the book, but that was very late. And I was kind of holding my breath while I was drawing out the, the structure of it, hoping that it all actually made sense. And I never diagrammed Jire's relationship with M. I did that part intuitively. And I think the reason I did that intuitively was because that was where I came, that's, that is the skill that I came into this already the strongest at. It's something that I practiced a lot. I spent many years in the fan fiction word mines and fan fiction is sort of best at doing these tight focus, deep dives into character relationships. And so I already had a sort of intuitive sense when something was working and when it wasn't. That didn't mean that I knew how to fix it. So there was a lot of times where I would have to sort of focus in on a sequence and outline the entire, the lead up, what happens after and what I was trying to accomplish and then see if it was actually hitting those marks. But the majority of that relationship I did by feel and then I only had to solve those last problem bits. So have you been a spelunker? I'm not even sure how to say the word, but I know that's a cave explorer. Uh, Because I think you'd have to have had some experience with cave exploration. Well, at least on the one hand, although I can't imagine that someone who actually enjoys cave exploring would write a book like this, which makes me never, ever want to go into a cave again. I have been in one cave in my life. It was a lava tube, which is a lot different from the kind of cave that Jire is in, which is much more similar to a limestone cavern. And I lasted about 15 minutes before I turned around and walked out. Well, what kind of research did you do? And then how did you remain psychically in this space in your imagination? Because it's so frightening to read. And I would imagine you're that much more intimate when you're actually creating and envisioning and and writing the story and therefore more uncomfortable. So I have gone rock climbing only in a gym and only a couple times, but enough that I'm vaguely familiar with the sort of challenges involved and the the technology involved and the techniques. And then on top of that, my husband has done much more rock climbing than I have. So I was able to turn to him to sort of get a experienced layperson's read on did everything make sense. But for the the cave-specific things, and there is a lot of cave-specific techniques involved in rock climbing, not all of which I feel like I captured perfectly, but I used a couple books for research. One is called 
Beyond the Deep by Bill Stone and Barbara Amende. And I don't have the third author's name in front of me, but that is a journey into one particular very large cave system that was explored in 1994, I want to say, or the major, the, the book covers the 1994 expedition. Um, the cave system is called Sistema Hualta. And they had to deal with things like sumps and early rebreather technology and long expeditions. Um, I also used a book called Blind Descent, which covers that same expedition, a couple others that Bill Stone did, and some expeditions that were done in the Republic of Georgia by some Ukrainian teams. And I really pulled all of my, or not all, most of my technique knowledge from those books. The rest, when I had a question, when I was trying to write Jai or doing something, and I went, okay, is this realistic? I would do a quick search and find a you know, an open forum board and sort of read any related stuff I could get my hands on. And that prior research and my husband, between the two of them, I was usually able to decipher what everyone was talking about so I could get a sense if something was physically possible or not. And so what was the writing process like for you? Were there a lot of drafts? Did the story change a lot? You've described some of the nuanced changes you made, it sounds like, on the road towards publication. But what was the hardest thing about writing the book? So it was my first book that I tried to pursue publication with. So the querying process is not for the faint of heart. And it was a whole lot to take on. But in terms of actual writing, I think the hardest thing was that change I mentioned where we decided to remove the, you know, the creature feature monsters from the book. And then suddenly, I had to rewrite half of the book in just a couple months, essentially, to get that that rough but polished draft down so that we could then go into line edits and all that fun stuff. That changeover was incredibly difficult because I had not intended to take out those monsters. I really liked those monsters, but the editor who acquired the book was much smarter than I was and looked at it and said, I don't think you need them. I think there's more I think if you had more room to explore Jire and Emma's relationship, the book would be stronger for it. And it turns out he was right. But I didn't necessarily trust him at first. And of course, that's really funny because trust is a major theme in this book. But I didn't trust him at first. And so I was trying to do this work on sort of, it was almost like a hypothetical sort of, okay, well, if this is how it's going to sell, then this is how I'm going to do it. But it turned out that he was right. And the, the things that I liked about the book the most are all a part of that relationship between Jire and M. And so if you give me a whole book to explore it, I got to take it to some very interesting places, but also very intimate places for me. Yeah, the story really does revolve around their relationship. And it seems very real and very unusual and very complicated. All good things. When we were talking about it during edits, what we kept coming back to was this idea of Jire does not want to trust M. In a lot of ways, Jire cannot trust M. M has proven herself unworthy of that trust. But if Jire wants to get out alive, Jire must trust M. And that sort of contradictory understanding of, of how they have to relate informs the entire book and is very complicated to cover. And I think in a lot of other stories where this would only be a small part of the story and there'd be many other characters in a much larger plot, it would get dealt with fairly quickly and moved on from. 
And it probably would feel perfectly satisfying, but there's so much meat there that getting to really focus in just the way that we're focusing in on only Jair's experience in the cave and all of this micro stuff. It's, it's in some ways, it's just an extended character study, but it doesn't feel like a character study. You experience M and you perceive her in such extremes as someone who truly cares to someone who might be a serial killer. I mean, at, at some point I'm like, oh, maybe she just brings people down there and kills them when they're down there. I mean, there's definitely that moment where you're like, mm -hmm. don't trust her, you know, and but do trust her. And it's quite easy to imagine why Jire swings back and forth the way you reveal M's character and the device of having it communicated through this suit where there are so many barriers to communication so only certain information gets through really furthers the mystery and the complexity of trying to understand who who M really is. Well and there's also the element of for various reasons throughout the book there are periods of time where M isn't even in the book and it's only Jire and taking M away from Jire and from the reader, I think gives room for this more like, oh God, I want her back. I want her back. Where is she sort of feeling to come in? Which otherwise, if she was there the whole time, I think she would sort of wear out her welcome. Right. And every time she comes back, you don't know if she's had a worse time or if she's gotten some sleep. So sometimes she looks good and sometimes she looks worse. Mm -hmm. So you wonder what, was she off murdering someone else while she was away or was she doing good deeds? So what is next for you? So we don't have anything planned forthcoming. The Luminous Dead is a standalone and doesn't have a sequel. And I don't have anything else on deck with Harper Voyager. But I am working on two gothic horror pieces. One is novel length, one is a novella. The novella is sort of your uh, traditional horror tragedy where you're watching a character make bad choices that will lead to an interesting but dismal end. And the other, the novel, is something that I'm really excited about and I've talked about on other podcasts. It is a gothic horror romance where you have a woman who has arranged her own marriage to this young doctor who conveniently lives out of town. So her arrangement is, okay, it'll be a business relationship. I'll keep your surgery in town. You can live out of town. It's great, wonderful, cool. But of course, it quickly becomes more than that, and she ends up at his ancestral home outside of town, and it's haunted, but there's also occult magic going on, and there's also mathematical theory going on, and it is in some ways very different, in many ways very different from The Luminous Dead. It's this lush Victorian-esque setting, and it's not particularly, it's not physical survival action. But at the same time, it is still a very small cast and a very close focused environment that really puts a strain on these characters' relationships. So I think it's a, an interesting, nice next step for me to take. And I really hope that we can find a home for it. Sounds great. Well, something for us all to look forward to. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Caitlin. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I had a great time. I've been talking with Caitlin Starling about her debut novel, The Luminous Dead, published just this past April by Harper Voyager. Please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction and please leave a review or at least 
five stars. You don't have to write anything. You could just leave those stars. It really, really helps people learn about the show. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf. And you can find me at robwolf.net or on Twitter at robwolfbooks. And thanks so much for listening.